Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas-Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking about numbers 11 to 14 and 20 to 24, except we're also going to look at 25 for a moment, because that kind of rounds out some of the story. And again, maybe from last week, you remember that in Judaism, this book is really referred to as In the Wilderness which makes perfect sense because this really is a record of the time that the children of Israel, having left Egypt, spent in the wilderness. And it's a pretty sad but, you know, predictable story. We've already seen that the children of Israel are very weak, very quick to do mischief, very slow to follow God. They have seen many mighty miracles and many promises have been made to them and fulfilled and nevertheless They are hesitant and quick to doubt, quick to complain, to murmur or rebel against God by disobeying Moses or reviling against him. This is a pretty natural man tendency. (laughs) We're not foreign to it ourselves in our day. Hopefully we can use this example to examine our own lives and see if we are falling into some of these traps Because by doing so, we, like the children of Israel, would forfeit our chance to become a Zion people. Again, we talked about that last week, how this was the invitation that God gave to his people, was to become a peculiar, precious treasure to him, as was the city of Enoch. And you see here again and again and again how they have not really ever acquired the worthiness to do this, and they reject that great great offer and potential. I did want to mention something, if you'll forgive me. I don't mean to sound too negative about this, but in the Come Follow Me text, I was kind of interested to see that this was one of the ways they framed this lesson. Early on in the materials, it said this. I'm quoting from the Come Follow Me write-up. Even on foot, it wouldn't normally take 40 years to travel from the wilderness of Sinai to the promised land in Canaan. But that's how long the children of Israel needed, not to cover the geographical distance, but to cover the spiritual distance, the distance between who they were and who the Lord needed them to become as his covenant people. Now, you know, I'm going to take some issue with this. I'm not sure what the intent was here exactly or, you know, who was thinking what, but that's not really what happens in the book of Numbers. Yes, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, but they did not become a covenant people. They did not prepare spiritually. And as I said, it said not to cover geographical distance, but to cover the spiritual distance. And they didn't cover that spiritual distance. They remained a very rebellious, stiff-necked, stubborn group of people who would not accept God to be their God, who instead rebelled, never completely finished the task and the opportunity given to them to possess the land of Canaan by cleansing out those groups who had been ripened in iniquity while the Israelites were in Egypt. So anyway, I I think that's interesting as a take on this, but I don't think we have evidence of that here. I think what we see instead is just warnings against behaviors that can cost us the very blessings of Zion as those blessings were not received by the Israelites because of their unworthiness. So, you know, I don't want to tell every story that's in here, although there are some pretty great stories in here, and I hope that you enjoyed reading them, but I want to touch on a few, okay? You know, right there at 
chapter 11, look how it starts. The very first words of chapter 11 in Numbers, and when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. (laughs) Okay, if you only take away one thing from this group of chapters, which basically is what we're doing to cover the book of Numbers, remember that, that when we complain, it displeases the Lord. And, you know, why would that be? Well, it shows a lot of ingratitude, certainly shows a short memory, you know, that all these great things had been done, had been offered to the people of Israel, and instead, you know, they they quickly turn around and complain about the next problem. There's no real trust in God exhibited by these people. There's no real understanding of who He is and how great God is and how much He keeps His promises, how much He fulfills all His words to each of us who choose to become part of that covenant. And yet, you know, we can be part of the covenant. They had entered into a measure of covenant, but they did not keep that covenant and could never really progress or fulfill their potential. So that's a a pretty, you know, powerful, I would say, message that it displeases the Lord when we complain. This particular time that they're complaining is about manna. I mean, they are fed for all this time since they've left Egypt, which to this point is maybe a year and a half or so, and they are tired of it. They want fresh meat or something different. You know, it says that this could be ground and baked into cakes or whatever, and it had sort of the taste of fresh oil. But they complain, and they get so tired of it, and immediately, what do they always say? You know, hey, we remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely. You know, so it's always going back to like, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? Why didn't you just let us die in Egypt? Were there no graves there? Didn't we have a better life? Which again, such incredible short-sightedness, you know, sort of in retrospect, that, that have you so quickly forgotten what it was like to have those levies of how many bricks to make and to slave labor, you know, for the Egyptians. And then they even tried to kill your children and stop you from having sons because they didn't like how fast you were growing as a population. But this having manna just come every morning as the dew settles on the earth, God gives you this manna to eat and all you have to do is go pick it up. But let's go back to where they were killing our children or to where, you know, we had to be slaves to this empire you know, you kind of wonder at, at how incredibly stiff-necked they are. But the question is always to look in the mirror and say, like, you know, what lack I yet? How am I being stubborn and stiff-necked? So Moses' understandable and sort of heart-wrenching reaction here is recorded in verse 11, still in Numbers chapter 11. And Moses says unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant, and wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? I mean, like, what have I ever done to deserve the burden of the children of Israel? And then, skipping down a little bit into verse 15, And if thou deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. In other words, if you have any love for me at all, just kill me rather than afflict me with the children of Israel any longer. Of course, he gets them for another, you know, 38 plus years. So he's with these people for 40 years, give or take. And he is sometimes so pained that he wishes God, you know, if he had a momentary bonus he wanted to give Moses, that it would be just to kill him now so that he doesn't have to deal with him anymore. That's pretty sad. But that's understandable. And you can only imagine how the Lord himself felt when here these These people are so 
ungrateful, so quick to want to go back to a terrible situation from which the Lord rescued them in love and power. But things aren't good enough for them ever, so there's constant complaint. So God says, fine, let's give them meat. They want meat, let's give them meat. But he warns them that in verse 20, even a whole month until it come out of your nostrils and it be loathsome unto you, because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you and have wept before him, saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? He says, fine, maybe you'll learn a lesson here. Maybe you'll learn that, yes, you know, you petition loud enough. You know, the Lord sometimes will answer your prayers and you're not going to like what you get because you're ungrateful. Again, nothing satisfies you. Let me just give a quick personal story about this. When we had moved into a house in Las Vegas, our first house there, and it was new construction. We had to finish it, in fact, after we bought it so that we could have it ready to move in. And it was a slow process for us to improve the property once we moved in. We were a little bit house poor for a while. And we had six kids at that time, and two more were born to us when we lived in that house. And, you know, I was pretty happy being there because we had some space for the kids and property. Now, it took us a while, as I said, to do other improvements. And we had come from Chicago where you don't have to have sprinklers, right? Because it rains enough in the Midwest. Our kids were a little surprised that we didn't have grass. And they would ask sometimes like, well, why don't we have grass? And I'd say, well, because, you know, we need to put in a sprinkler system first. But before we put the sprinkler system in, we need to get a wall up. And of course, in Las Vegas, the only thing that lasts in terms of any kind of fencing is cinder block wall. Everything else is destroyed by the heat and the sun. So that's an expensive proposition to go around a half acre. So we hadn't yet put in the wall. And then until we did that, we didn't want to you know, figure out where the sprinklers went and then plant the grass or put in the sods. So it was a long process. I actually was visiting teaching a lady at that time, very nice young married woman. I think she had one child at the time. And they were in a different financial situation from where we were. And I found that every time I went to visit her, I started feeling a little unsatisfied. <laughs> and I guess it was because as I stopped to think about it, you know, she, they were moving very fast in you know, move, in getting some things done on their property it was most of the homes there were fairly new. People were were building, so you know. But every time I went, she was kind of giving me this accounting of what they had done in the interim. So every month that I went to visit her, there were new things that they'd accomplished. You know, they had their wall up, they had their sprinklers in, they had their grass done. You know, now they were thinking of putting a pool in the backyard. You know, and worrying about this and that and decorating and things like that. <laughs> we were just on a different pace. So I remember after kind of figuring this out that like, I'm feeling unsatisfied. That's not a good way to feel. We have been very blessed. I remember one time when Chris came home from work, I was just outside leaning against the cinder block wall that we had had recently had erected. And he came over and said, so what are you doing? And I said, I'm enjoying this wall. <laughs> I'm just leaning against this wall. And I'm really grateful for it. And I'm okay if this is how things are for a little while because, you know, we've made some progress and that's a good thing. And it was a good lesson to me to not let the pace of other people or, you know, these comparisons that we so easily and foolishly make upset us or make us feel dissatisfied or ungrateful. And I think, you know, the children of Israel would have done well to look back sometimes and lean against that wall, so to speak, and decide, you know, look how good the Lord has been to us. Look all that he has done for us. Well, the Lord is good. And look what the Lord does for Moses. He says, gather 70 men. This is verse 16 of the elders of Israel. 
whom thou knowest to be elders, and, and bring them to come stand with thee, and I will come down and talk with thee. This is verse 17. And I will take the spirit which is upon thee and will put it upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with thee, that thou bear it not thyself alone. This, I think, is such a tender kindness for Moses from the Lord to give him some help in sustaining this burden. And I'm skipping a little bit to verse 24. So he goes out and tells the people the words of the Lord and gathers 70 men of the elders of the people. And then the Lord comes down in a cloud on the tabernacle and speaks to them. And that people could always tell, incidentally, you'll notice that every time the Lord is speaking to Moses in the tabernacle, there's a cloud that descends upon that portable building. And he took of the spirit that was upon him and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. But two of those 70 remained in the camp, and it names them Eldad and Medad, and they start prophesying where they are. And interestingly, Joshua becomes concerned in verse 28, and he comes rushing to Moses and says, hey, they're prophesying like this. My Lord Moses forbid them. In verse 29, a famous statement that Moses makes, envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets? and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Would God that all the Lord's people would be prophets? In other words, all people, if they would have the spirit, could receive revelation from the Lord and appropriate to their stewardships could share that. But don't envy that for me. I want to have more people in the house of Israel and the men to support the good works of the Lord and to support Moses' calling before the people. But then, remember, the Lord had said, fine, back in verse 20, I'll give them quail until it comes out of their nostrils, and it'll be loathsome unto them, because they despise the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, why came we forth out of Egypt? That old complaint. So now, jumping forward to verse 31, there's a wind from the Lord, and it brings quails from the sea, and it lets them fall in the camp. And they had so many quail that it's just as the Lord said. You know, they start to to get sick. And in verse 33, while the flesh was yet between their teeth and ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. So they pay a price for the complaining that they always do. And again, I think that it's important to remember that this is not an evidence of a harsh God. It's an evidence of harsh people, people who have been so blessed, so rescued by God and continue to speak against him every chance Anything, you know, anything goes the slightest bit wrong or they're uncomfortable. They can't even hold that thought for a moment before they immediately want to go back to slavery instead of serving the Lord. Really a slap in God's face. So I hope that it changes the way we see this God of the Old Testament and never again, you know, fall into that trap of, of thinking, boy, he was a tough God. It's really the tough people that he was working with that bring about these events. Now, in chapter 12, we talked about this quite a while ago when we talked about Moses's first 40 years as a prince of Egypt, because here's the place that we referenced back when we talked about those 40 years that he spent in, in the palace of the Egyptians, where they reference the fact that he married this Ethiopian woman. And Miriam starts it, and then Aaron kind of joins in, and they sort of toss it in his face as if he had done something wrong even though that was long before he had really joined himself to the Israelites and learned about God's covenants. In verse 2 of chapter 12, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And then this beautiful verse in 
chapter 12, verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. That's quite the statement. Remember, meekness, appropriately restrained power, or another definition that one of my sons was telling me about is something like intense power under perfect control. I think that was the definition. I really like that too. Intense power, but under perfect control. So this is Moses. He doesn't flash around his power that comes from God, but is given to him as the prophet. And so the Lord speaks unto Moses and Aaron and unto Miriam, and he says, come to the tabernacle. And they all go there, and he comes down in the cloud again. And he calls Aaron and Miriam, and he says, Hear now my words, verse 6, If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak unto him in a dream. Verse 7, My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house, because here it is in verse 8, With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses, and the anger of the Lord's kindled against them, in verse 9. So then Miriam, as the Lord departs, is covered with leprosy. And Aaron says, okay, we're sorry, please don't let her stay leprous. And God immediately asks the Lord, in verse 13, to heal her. And the Lord says, okay, but let her have seven days of this, that she be shut out of the camp until she can come in and do the ritual of, you know, being clean again. And then in chapter 13, we have the 12 spies, one from each tribe, that are sent to go in to scout the land Canaan. Now, the Lord has made it clear that this land is to be given to the Israelites. Again, remember back there in the days of Abraham, he told Abraham the land is not yet ripened in iniquity. The Amorites have not yet totally corrupted themselves. So it's not time for your people to come in and wipe out those those Canaanite peoples. But now they have. In all these years that have passed, hundreds of years, the Lord is saying, I'm giving you this land to you. So go scout it out. And they spend six weeks scouting it out, and they come back and say it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's so beautiful and wonderful and lush. And they even bring back some grapes that are ripe and other wonderful things. But the people are strong. This is verse 28, right? The people be strong that dwell on the land. And the Amalekites dwell in, and even they mention this, children of of Anak, which are like giants. Those were very large people that were scary. The only two of the 12 spies who are ready to, to follow the command of the Lord and go into the land are Caleb, who is of the tribe of Judah, and Joshua, who is of the tribe of Ephraim. And we know Joshua, right? He has always been a kind of a lieutenant to Moses. But Caleb also was a righteous member of the tribe of Judah, and they believed the promises of the Lord. And they say, verse 30, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it, because they trust in what the Lord has said. But here we are again, children of Israel, chapter 14, they start to murmur against Moses and against Aaron. Verse 2, it says, the whole congregation said unto them, would God we had died in the land of Egypt or in this wilderness. And so look what they do in verse 4, let us make a captain and let us return unto Egypt. Can you imagine this? Like, not only are they not willing to come in and possess the land that the Lord has promised them they can inhabit, which is flowing with milk and honey, as reported, 
but they don't trust that the Lord who has brought them out of Egypt with a mighty arm, saved them from Pharaoh's armies by dividing the Red Sea where they passed through on dry land and then that engulfed the chariots of Pharaoh. No, man in the wilderness every day? No, that's not enough apparently for them to think that the Lord can fulfill this promise. This is a pretty awful situation where they are so weak and so stubborn in their mistrust and their murmuring. So they want to choose a captain to take them back to Egypt. And you know, again, the Lord is is really, really saddened by this, and his wrath is kindled against them. Chapter 14, verse 11, how long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have shewed among them? Verse 12, I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee, meaning Moses and any of the other who choose righteousness, will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. Moses uses the same counter-argument in verse 13, you know, well, everybody's going to hear of it. Now, this is an interesting point because it is important kind of to understand, and we're going to see indications of this later, that the Canaanites had heard what God had done for Israel. I mean, news did travel. So, They knew that this people had been enslaved in Egypt and that a series of plagues upon Egypt had brought them out of that slavery into the wilderness, and they had heard of the parting of the Red Sea, and they had heard that these people had traveled in the wilderness. They probably even knew about the manna. So Moses is saying, well, you know, now they're going to hear that the Lord just brought them out of the wilderness to destroy them, so I'm really asking you not to do that and to still work with them. And again, we don't change the Lord's mind about things, so it's always interesting the way stories are told. And I'm not saying Moses didn't respond in this way, I'm just saying that we know that the Lord isn't going to say like, oh, yeah, that's a better idea than the one I had, because there are no better ideas than the ones the Lord has. The church does not give revelation to Christ. (laughs) It comes the other direction. Christ gives revelation to his people, and if we're wise, we follow it. So this is just an interesting little connection here between the Lord and Moses, where Moses is saying like, oh, you know, I know they are terrible, but spare them so that they can fulfill at least part of the purpose. So what does God say? Verse 18, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. We talked about that last time. By no means clearing the guilty. Just because he is forgiving and kind doesn't mean that there are not still costs to gross rebellion and disobedience or stiff-neckedness. And at this point, the Lord indicates this opportunity will be lost, that this generation will not enter into Canaan and inherit this land flowing with milk and honey. So chapter 14, verse 22, because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted me now these 10 times, we don't even know all the 10 times, but apparently there were at least 10 times, where the people of Israel completely rebelled against Moses and God in the wilderness and have not hearkened to my voice, verse 23, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. And then he makes an exception for Caleb and for Joshua, because they were not of that generation that wouldn't enter into Canaan. The other spies, you know, even showed their doubts to the children of Israel, and the children of Israel were ready to have another captain that they chose to take him back to Egypt. So those two men were righteous enough. They were believing of the Lord, Caleb and Joshua. So they do survive to see the promised land. 
and to enter in. But verse 27, the Lord says, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation, which murmur against me? So verse 29, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. So they're not going to come into the Canaan. He's, he's going to leave them marching around the wilderness for another 38 plus years, total of 40 years they spent in the wilderness because they didn't have the faith to believe that God who had done all these other miracles could do another miracle and help them clear out the land of the wicked inhabitants of Canaan. Verse 31, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, them will I bring in, and they shall know the land which ye have despised. But as for you, verse 32, your carcasses, they shall fall in the wilderness. And 33, your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bury your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. So he's repeating this a few times. Verse 37 tells us that all those spies except for Caleb and Joshua, died from a plague before the Lord. And then in verse 39, when Moses tells the people what's going to happen, they mourned greatly, and they rise up early in the morning, and they go to the top of the mountain and say, oh, look, we're here. We can go into this place that the Lord has promised because we have sinned. And Moses says in verse 41, don't transgress again. You know, if you're not going to obey what he says and just march around the wilderness till you're dead, you know, you are not going to prosper. Verse 42, go not up for the Lord is not among you and you'll be smitten before your enemies for the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you and ye shall fall by the sword because ye are turned away from the Lord. That's verse 43, but they went up anyway, verse 44. And then the Amalekites come down in verse 45 and the Canaanites and they smote them and discomfited them. Well, which means they lost a great battle here. So, I mean, again, look at this. You know, we don't want it. We're not going to go in. We won't be strong enough, you know, so don't make us go into the land of Canaan. And then the Lord says, fine, you don't want this land. You're not going to get it. And you'll have to march in the wilderness until all of this generation, 20 years and older, are going to die. And then your children will be able to inherit this land. And then they're like, well, no, we changed our minds. So now we want to do it. And Moses says, no, you can't do it now because the Lord will not be with you. And they don't listen again. I mean, they just don't ever listen. <laughs> they want to do it their way. They don't want to do it the Lord's way. And they, they don't prosper. Again, may we take a good look at our lives and say, are there areas where we are not prospering or preventing the Lord from blessing us because we are doing it our way? I'm not talking about the more celestial refining trials which come to the righteous because the Lord wants us to become you know, purified and become more like his son, Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about troubles that come that will refine us in that way. I'm talking about the times we put our own hand on a hot stove and get burned. And then, and then we want to blame somebody, you know, the Lord didn't bless us. Well, wait a minute. Did we prevent the Lord from blessing us because we didn't have the faith or we didn't do the works of righteousness? Because the Lord cannot bless us when we prevent him by our own iniquity. And the children of Israel are just a prime example of that kind of foolishness. So again, kind of forgive me if I don't really understand that characterization of this period of years in the wilderness as a period of time, as it you know said in the lesson, to cover the spiritual distance between who they were and who the Lord needed them to become. It really isn't that. It's really he's going to give them all this time in the wilderness to die off because they had demonstrated again and again, after many, many, many opportunities, they continued to be rebellious and disobedient. So the Lord's like, you're not 
going to be the ones who fulfill this covenant. It will be your children instead. And that's what happened. Now, in the next group of chapters that we're going to read here, but chapters 20 through 24, and as I said, I think we're going to talk a little bit about 25 also, but we're skipping a few chapters where another event happens. You know, they just keep happening, right? Where some of the men in Israel fight against Moses and Aaron because they don't have the priesthood. Now, remember, they rejected the priesthood, but now they think you're taking all this power into yourselves, and they they say that shouldn't we have the priesthood too? What they really mean is the, the higher priesthood or the Melchizedek priesthood, because that is what Moses and Aaron had. The Levites had that limited Levitical priesthood, and Aaron's sons all had the Aaronic priesthood. Nevertheless, they want that higher priesthood, and again, they're smitten with a plague, and like over 14,000 of them die. I mean, it's interesting because at the end of the book of Numbers, there's another census. There's one at the beginning, which is why many of us call it the book of Numbers, because they number the children of Israel. And at the beginning of the book of Numbers, where they do a census, there are actually a larger number of the children of Israel than there are at the end of the book of Numbers by a couple of thousand-ish. And why? Well, because there are big groups that keep dying off, not just those that die of old age as they wander through the wilderness, but also, you know, in these events where they are so unrighteous that large numbers of them are killed, either as they were recently by the Amalekites and the Canaanites, or because of their own unrighteousness and a plague comes and gets 14,000 plus of them, or where others defile themselves in different ways, and so some of them are killed or consumed by fire or whatever. So it's interesting that they actually lose population over this 40-year period, which is not has not been their history. But so many of them just needed to be kind of wiped out because they would never have even gone as far as the Israelites did finally go into taking possession of the land of their inheritance, which they're never successful at, as we've mentioned. In chapter 20, both Miriam and Aaron die. And it talks about that a little bit and about how the Israel mourns for them because they were leaders with Moses and, you know, made made big sacrifices for those people. So then they're complaining again shortly after Miriam dies uh, that they don't have water. Again, short memories here. They don't seem to recognize that God has always provided for them. And then, as we mentioned before, you can ask the Lord what shall we do, you know, just like Nephi did with the broken bow, but they don't. They just start to complain immediately. So here's an event that is kind of referenced in several places, chapter 20, verse 10, where Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation before the rock and say, here now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And then in verse 12, the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. Meaning in the footnote, you know, that you'd spoke to the rock, but, you know, I told you to speak to the rock and instead you struck it. So you didn't do it exactly my way. And because of this, you're not going to enter into the promised land. And that could be, it's certainly referenced again and again in Scripture that this was the reason that Moses didn't enter in with the children of Israel after 40 years in the wilderness to go and actually walk into the land of Canaan. To be honest, I don't, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I think Moses had demonstrated his fidelity before the Lord in so many ways. And yes, in this moment, perhaps there was a moment of weakness or pride. I'm not saying that there wasn't an error here. Perhaps we have very limited descriptions here, but it seems to me that the Lord has forgiven much greater 
problems. And I think, for instance, of Joseph Smith in the 116 manuscript pages, where he actually relinquished the plates as a surety that he would get those pages back. And of course, it was a foolish thing because the Lord had already told him not to do it. And then he thinks he may forever have lost the gift of translation and that another will have to be raised up in his stead because he has betrayed the Lord. And the Lord forgave that, and he allowed Joseph to continue and to receive back the gift which he had lost to translate, and then to go forward and organize the restored gospel, the restored church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on the earth, and to do many other great marvelous things, including building temples and establishing a great people and bringing back the endowment. So, I don't think it's that the Lord couldn't have forgiven Moses here. I'm pretty sure he could have. And Moses, again, had proven his faithfulness many times before and would again following this event. So I think that it was that the Lord did not intend for Moses to continue his ministry in Canaan. That was to pass into other hands, specifically Joshua's hands. And Joshua is the one who leads them in, as you know. So, It's a story that we tell, and yes, it's a good reminder to do things exactly the way the Lord does them. I don't think it's that God was so upset by a momentary lapse by this great prophet, the meekest of men on all the face of the earth, and then just, you know, said, okay, fine, you're not going to get this great reward. That doesn't make sense to me from what we know of Moses and from what we know of God. So it seems that, okay, this was a reminder to Moses that you need to be careful to do things my way and to make sure that you're honoring me before the congregation. And let me just take this as an opportunity to tell you that it will not be your mission to go into the land of Canaan. And of course, Aaron doesn't go into the land of Canaan because he dies, and that is recorded here in this chapter. Then we have in chapter 21, the beginning of the conquest of Canaan. They haven't crossed over Jordan yet, but there are a lot of tribes that are Canaanite tribes around this area, of course. And already they have had some interaction where they've asked to pass through a land and not do any harm or even pay for the privilege or whatever, and that has been refused many times, or at least it's refused a few times during these chapters. In chapter 21, and this is kind of interesting, again, as I was saying, the people of Canaan knew of the Israelites. I mean, think about it. We're talking probably two to three million people who are on the march. They number the men, and they're somewhat over 600,000 men, and then it's women and children. And plus, they're bringing all their cattle with them. So this is pretty amazing as a, as a nation on the march. And in verse 1 of chapter 21, King Arad, the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by way of the spies— Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So he's already trying to fight back. And he knows this. This is what he has heard from these prisoners. And again, just the other reports that have come of this huge nation coming toward Canaan. Verse 2, And Israel had vowed a vow, I'm adding a word, unto the Lord, and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. So the Israelites are very clear on what God had intended, that because the iniquity of the Canaanites was full and ripened, that the Lord would use Israel to eliminate those peoples, because again, we don't want to send spirit children into places where the light of Christ will be extinguished even before they reach the age of accountability. Just as in the time of Noah, there was a, there was a 
space granted for them to repent, and then that space was done. And once they had shown themselves fully locked in their iniquity, they had chosen that, they were bound by the chains of their sins, and they didn't even want to come out, then it was time to like wipe that slate clean. So here the same thing is happening in Canaan. Again, it's not a harsh, angry God who just likes some people better than others. You know, he's not too fond of the Israelites either in many respects, as we see here again and again in the words of the Lord. But he has chosen a path through which he is going to bless the earth. And the Israelites are that path. So God will use the people he has. And I think we see this again and again and again in all the dealings of the Lord with his people. But he doesn't ever change his standards. So while he might be able to, and he always is able to engineer things in such a way that he uses even iniquity to further his causes, but he never excuses or foreordains that wickedness. But he can use it. Do you remember that cute story? Now, this is not about a wicked man at all, but it's kind of a cute story that Gordon B. Hinckley's daughter told once, I think. It might have been in his biography, where the daughter of Gordon B. Hinckley said that she remembers her father often saying about the missionary force, because sometimes he'd hear stories about, you know, different things where the missionaries were not being obedient or causing trouble or not working, whatever the case might be. And that President Hinckley would say to his family, well, they're not much, but they're all the Lord has. (laughs) So it's pretty cute and true that the Lord will use who the Lord has. But It doesn't clear the guilty. We've read this twice now in these past two weeks, that just because the Lord can accommodate those things in order to fulfill his purposes, that doesn't mean it clears the wicked or clears the guilty. There will still be a day of accountability, and if people don't repent, they will pay the price for their sins that are unrepented. So anyway, the story continues that this daughter, when her father, Gordon B., was called and set apart and ordained to be the president of the church and the Lord's prophet on the earth. She said it was kind of helpful for her to remember a version of that same comment her father used to make, that, well, you know, he's not much, but he's all the Lord has. Now, Gordon B. Hinckley was a wonderful man, obviously, but those close to him, his family, knew that he was a man, and that like every man or woman, there are human weaknesses or imperfections that have not yet been swallowed up in that endowment of perfection that comes in the resurrection if we remain faithful and after all we can do. So anyway, I think that's a nice reminder that the Lord uses all kinds of people. It doesn't mean that he's putting his stamp of approval on people who do not obey the commandments. And that's an important distinction. Don't ever be deceived by thinking that just because the Lord is using somebody, even in a calling, that that person automatically has a stamp of approval. What gives us the Lord's stamp of approval, so to speak, is when we are obedient to our covenants, obedient to the commandments of the Lord. We are not stiff-necked or rebellious, but we continue faithful, and we trust in the Lord, and we trust in the fulfilling of His promises. So these children of Israel, you know, they're really not stellar, but the Canaanites have heard that the Lord is with them because the Lord is going to use them to bring forth his plan. And out of the seed of these people will come people who will bless the earth and through which the Lord Jesus Christ himself will come to the earth as well as later on the prophet of the restoration, Joseph Smith. These will come out of the house of Israel. And that there is a a great purpose here at work. But those who are in the house of Israel, no better than anybody else, 
maybe worse than some, unless they repent. But nevertheless, God can use them because he has this plan ordained from the beginning that requires a people, his house of Israel, to bring to pass the works that the Lord has in store. So the Lord hearkens unto the voice of Israel in verse 3 and delivers up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroy the Canaanites and their cities. So this is what's going to happen, right? Notice, though, that because in the end of chapter 20, or close to the end of chapter 20, it mentions the king of Edom and how Moses had petitioned him to go through the land, but the king of Edom, and the Edomites, by the way, are descendants of Esau. Maybe you remember Jacob and Esau, the twins, and Esau was the oldest by a few minutes, but Jacob was the birthright son because of his righteousness, and Esau lost his position as as the birthright son because he didn't care and didn't stay worthy to the covenant. So anyway, this is the same descendant group. So they are children of Abraham, and they don't give permission to the Israelites to go through their land. So in verse 4, it says they had to compass the land of Edom. They had to go around. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. So that's not very convenient to them. Instead of being able to pass through and not do any harm, they have to go all the way around, obviously a tiring journey, So once again, verse 5, the people spake against God and against Moses, wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there's no bread, neither any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. Our soul loatheth this light bread. They're talking about the manna. We're sick of the manna. (laughs) I'm not saying you wouldn't get tired of the same fare every day. I, I understand that. But given how rebellious and wicked these people are, that they're not even grateful that they don't have to till the ground, sow seeds, you know, weed their crops or whatever, and then make sure they're watered and harvested. No, they go and pick up their food every day, but they get sick of it and they complain again. So this is the event when the fiery serpents come amongst the children of Israel and start to bite them, and many die. So some of them come to Moses in verse 7 and say, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against thee, so pray that it'll take away these fiery serpents. And this time the Lord says, okay, make a fiery serpent out of brass and put it on a tent pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And verse 9, he makes the serpent of brass, puts it on a pole, and if the serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, He lived, and then they go on. Now let's stop for a minute, though, and see the extra material or information and detail that we get about this particular story from the Book of Mormon, which is, you know, obviously a story that the Book of Mormon peoples knew very well, and they refer to it in their writings. First Nephi does in chapter 17 of First Nephi, when starting with verse 40, he says, and I love this, by the way, can I, I quote this all the time. He loveth those who will have him to be their God. I think that's such an important idea, that God loveth those who will have him to be their God. Now, God doesn't really ask that much of us. He wants us to choose him to be our God and then to do things his way with faith in him and trust in him and a willing heart. He wants our desires to be toward him. He wants us to give him our will rather than wrestle him for it all the time and want to do things our way instead of his way. He loveth us 
when we will have him to be our God. I think that's such an important idea. It's available to all people. As we said, the Israelites weren't all that special. In some ways, they were particularly stiff-necked. But this is why God invites all and denies none, because anyone can become one of his people who will have him to be their God. And we do see examples of this throughout the scriptures, that there were people who were of the Gentiles, other peoples who did not belong to the house of Israel, but showed sometimes greater faith than those in the house of Israel. And God welcomes them easily and quickly and lovingly into his people, because it's really about this, that he will love us if we will have him to be our God. So that's how this starts. Let's get back to the record here that talks about the serpents. Behold, he loveth our fathers, and he covenanted with them, yea, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he remembered the covenants which he had made. Wherefore, he did bring them out of the land of Egypt. In verse 41, and he did straighten them in the wilderness. That means correct them, right? To try to correct and shape them up in the wilderness with his rod, for they hardened their hearts, even as ye have. So he's using this example of the children of Israel being so hard-hearted to Laman and Lemuel, who are similarly complaining about everything. You know, what do they say? Instead of, were there no graves in Egypt? It's basically, why didn't you leave us in Jerusalem? Why did you take us out of Jerusalem? It was a great city. Those people were really nice after all. You just judged them and condemned them, but that wasn't right. We should have stayed. Very similar pattern here, and it can happen to any of us. So going on in verse 41, and the Lord straightened them because of their iniquity. He sent fiery flying serpents among them, and after they were bitten, he prepared a way that they might be healed. And the labor which they had to perform was to look. That's a pretty easy assignment going on. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. And that's sort of astonishing, isn't it? And again, may it help us understand that we're not talking about a harsh God in the Old Testament. We're talking about a harsh people. Because even here, they are dying because of these poisonous, venomous serpents. And there apparently were a couple of breeds of serpent in that area that were called fiery serpents or referred to in that way because when you were bitten by them, you immediately had a, a bunch of inflammation enter your system. Your face got red. It felt like it was on fire and people got a very severe fever and died quite quickly. So they referred to them as fiery serpents because of the impact of that venom on the system that was like, you know, being, being kind of burned from within. And God gives them this easy, simple task. Look on this serpent. Now, the serpent represents Christ, right? Who is lifted up as that serpent was lifted up. And the Christ to come would be lifted up and crucified for all his people, for all of us, if we would believe. And here it was, the brazen serpent, a symbol of salvation to come in Christ. And because it was so easy there were many who perished. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty stubborn that you can't accept salvation of the Lord, the saving power that would even save your life because it can't be true. I don't trust what Moses does. I don't trust the Lord. He doesn't have the power. Alma also mentions this same event. And now we're in chapter 33, starting with verse 18. But behold, this is not all. 
These are not the only ones, speaking of other prophets in the past who had testified of Christ, who have spoken concerning the Son of God. Verse 19 of Alma 33, Behold, he was spoken of by Moses. Yea, and behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness, that whosoever would look upon it might live, and many did look and live. Verse 20, But few understood the meaning of these things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look, therefore they perished. Now the reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. That's the bottom line. Moses says, look here and live, and they don't believe Moses. Again, after all these days. I'm going to go on for a couple more verses in chapter 33 of Alma. Oh, my brethren, if ye could be healed by merely casting about your eyes that ye might be healed, would ye not behold quickly? Or would ye rather harden your hearts in unbelief and be slothful that ye would not cast about your eyes that ye might perish? Verse 22, if so, woe shall come upon you. But if not so, then cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God. And it goes on and testifies of Christ in the rest of that verse. But brothers and sisters, this is a powerful story. And it's an important story because sometimes because of the easiness of the way, you know, we don't, we don't want to do what's right. We think that's too simple to just, you know, read the scriptures, to pray to God, to, to learn to feel his love, to come to understand his goodness, to trust him. These are simple precepts to believe the prophets to not murmur and complain against them. It's not complicated. It's really not complicated. If the price of being saved, of living eternally with him, is to be obedient, to pay our tithing, to keep the Sabbath day holy, to not covet our own property, to dress modestly, to speak modestly, to be worthy of our temple covenants, you know, to, to help the poor. I mean, these are simple things, brothers and sisters. So so simple, really. Now, again, you know, simple, easy, well, meaning that once you get into it, the Lord will test our resolve. But so much easier than the consequences of worshiping the world or our own flesh or many other idols that we can erect in this world that we start to care about more than we care about God. How tragic. Now, I want to then kind of wrap up here by talking about Balaam. Well, couple other messages, forgive me, more than just Balaam, but we're going to talk about Balaam. Balaam gets a few chapters. He gets all of 22, 23, even 24. And there's even some relevant information in the following chapter as well. So he's got a few chapters devoted to this story. And it's kind of a fascinating story. Now, Bruce R. McConkie actually wrote a message for one of the church magazines back in April of 1972, so a long time ago when Bruce R. McConkie was an assistant to the Twelve. The message was entitled, The Story of a Prophet's Madness. And that's an interesting way to put this, because that's kind of what's going on. Balaam is obviously a man with a gift, and he even knows where that gift comes from. And he tries to petition the Lord to know, so there, there's prophet qualities in Balaam, no doubt. And again, as we've said, the Canaanites could see the Israelites coming. They've already won a couple of battles, and they've annihilated the Canaanite enemies that they have already been able to beat. So now they're afraid. And King Barak, who is a king of the Moabites, wants to get Balaam's blessing. 
And Balaam is known to be able to bless or to curse. So in verse, this is chapter 22, verse 6, Balak sends somebody to Balaam and asks him to take this money and then curse me this people, for they are too mighty for me. And then at the end of that verse, because I wot that he whom thou blessest, like I know that he whom thou blessest is blessed, and he whom thou cursest is cursed. King Balak, I don't know how to say that, Balak, Balak, whatever, knows that Balaam blesses some and they are blessed, and he curses some and they indeed are cursed. But interestingly, you know, Balaam says, well, you know, I can't do that. In verse 12, God tells Balaam, don't go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people for they are blessed. But then King Balak sends even more, you know, noblemen or whatever in the kingdom and more money and promises to do unto you great honor in verse 17. But come, I pray thee, curse me this people. And Balaam says again to the servants of Balak in verse 18, if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So he knows from whence this power comes. And he says, I have to do it God's way. And then there's something confusing here in verse 20, and we don't even have a correction in the footnote, but there is a correction in the Joseph Smith translation, which used to be called the inspired version. Maybe you remember. So in that complete volume, which is not completely put into the Bible, I mean, it's longer than would be easy to incorporate into with every correction into the Old Testament. So we don't have all of it in that version. We don't have all of it in the longer sections that exist at the end of the book with the Joseph Smith translation. But this is a correction that Joseph Smith made in verse 20. God came unto Balaam at night and said unto thee, if the man come to call thee, rise up and go with him. But that's not what was truly in the record. Joseph Smith corrected that to say, go if thou wilt. And that's a pretty big difference. So instead of saying, you know, yeah, okay, fine, you can go with them and curse Israel, he says, no, go if you want to. But the Lord has already told Balaam that you can't curse his people. They are blessed by me. I am going to protect them as they come into Canaan and clear the land so that they can inherit this land that I promised their fathers. So that's a big difference. Instead of just saying, no, you can't go, but now you can go, and then I'm going to get angry at you. No, he he says don't do it. But, you know, if you're going to choose to do it to try to make all that money, that prize money that they're offering you, then go ahead. But that's not going to change the truth of what the situation is. So what happens is a very unusual story. Nothing really like it that I know of in scripture where he's on his donkey and he's going with those princes of, of Moab and an angel stands in the way, and so the donkey can't pass. And of course, Balaam doesn't initially see the angel, so he's beating this poor donkey, which I really, you know, think is sad. And the donkey won't go forward in these three different times. You know, finally, he's really angry, and he says, you know, he's ready to, to really hurt the donkey. And in verse 28, the Lord opens the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, what have I done unto thee that thou hast spit me these three times? And you know, you'd think Balaam would be like stricken by the fact that his donkey is talking to him, but he is angry enough that he just starts to argue there. Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in mine hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass says in verse 30, Am I not thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? 
have I ever been want to do such a thing to you? And he says, well, no. So he's trying to say, I've been a good donkey all this time. Why would I do something just to hurt you? And then the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam in verse 31. He sees the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn. And he bows down his head and falls flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord says, wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? I went out to withstand thee because thy way is perverse before me. In other words, I really didn't want you to come. So that verse 20 that we read a minute ago was corrected by Joseph Smith, and that makes a lot more sense, because he did not contradict himself. He did tell Balaam not to go. And then he says, fine, go if thou wilt, but I am not going to bless thee on this journey, and I'm going to send a big message with this angel that this is not the will of the Lord. So anyway, off he goes, and then Balaam says to Balak, I've come, but I can't say anything unless God puts it in my mouth. That's in like verse 38. So what happens in 23, it seems like Balaam is really trying to get this reward. So he's thinking, maybe we can petition the Lord. You know, I don't know. Again, sketchy record. I don't mean to be making too much up here, but he tells the king to make seven altars and that they're going to sacrifice seven times to the Lord. And they do. And what comes out of his mouth? A blessing of Israel. So he blesses this people to inherit the land. And then mentions specifically... In chapter 23, verse 8, how shall I curse whom the Lord hath not cursed? And then in verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? So this is going to be a people that's going to become a large, blessed people. And then they try it again. They go on another peak, seven more altars, seven more sacrifices, and Balaam blesses them again, and they do it a third time. And Balaam blesses them again. And Balaam actually sees a messianic prophecy here, which he recounts. So when I were in chapter 24, verse 5, How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel, as the valleys are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of lying aloes, which the Lord hath planted, and as cedar trees beside the waters. He shall pour the water out of his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Anyway, we can go on, but he gives this great blessing. End of verse 9, blessed is he that blesseth thee, and cursed is he that curseth thee. And in verse 10, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together and says, I call thee to curse mine enemy, and behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. So in verse 13, Balaam says, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad out of mine own mind. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. And he does go on in verse 17 to give a beautiful prophecy of the Messiah. And he says, I shall behold him, but not nigh. In other words, it's going to be sometime in the future. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And that is the Messiah. And shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheph. And out of Jacob, verse 19, shall come he that shall have dominion. Again, the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, shall come out of this house of Israel, the seed of Jacob. So Balaam returns to his place at the last verse of chapter 24, verse 25, and Balak also went his way. Now, that is the end of the chapters that we're designated to study, but I think it's important to kind of look at the rest of the story of Balaam, because it's not quite over. In chapter 25, 
The Israelites are seduced into some terrible practices, and again, many of them are weakened and destroyed. So let's just start at the beginning of chapter 25. Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moab. Verse 2, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal, Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So the Lord instructs that the people who defiled themselves by not only committing fornication or adultery with these women of Moab, but also who worshipped their idols and bowed down before them. He says, okay, they have to be destroyed. So they're slain, and there's another plague in which 24,000 Israelites are killed. So this is a considerable number of Israel who has gone sinning with the Moabites. What's really kind of fascinating about this is that Balaam was involved, this prophet who really hoped to be able to become rich and famous because King Balak was going to honor him if he would curse Israel, that he actually advised the Canaanites to try to, you know, destroy Israel from within, so to speak, by getting them to sin. So you have to kind of choose this out of a few different references. And there are many, if you look in the Bible dictionary under Balaam, it shows many references to him in Nehemiah and in one of the books of John, and then also in Jude and in the book of Revelation. And it's in the book of Revelation, I think, that we have the clearest indicator here of of this problem. So Revelations chapter 2, verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So there's the rest of the story. Balaam, even though he is not able to curse Israel, but can only bless them, should have stayed home the first time. And instead of trying to entreat the Lord to let him curse Israel so that he could become rich and famous by going to those three different mountain peaks and having seven altars built and seven animals sacrificed in each case, and yet he could not curse Israel, but he thinks he's found a way around that and he can still be paid a high wage for helping Balak destroy the Israelites. And how does he do it? By telling Balak to go have those women, go seduce the Israelite men, not that the Israelite men are off the hook because they should never have fallen for that kind of thing. And then to to lure them into their idol worship and to eat the things that are sacrificed to the idols and to bow down before those idols. So it's kind of fascinating, don't you think? That Balaam won't give up. He really wants to please King Balak, who keeps offering him all kinds of reward. And he thinks, this will be my way. I can't curse them, but I'll help him defeat them by the rot within, which is often the case with the death of societies, right? As the rot comes from within. So pretty evil and conniving stuff. This doctrine of Balaam, it's a pretty, pretty fascinating phrase. We don't hear a whole bunch of that. But basically, it's, it's trying to destroy God's people with sin and getting them to not worship the Lord, but to worship whatever other gods. Now, I just want to quote a couple of things here that I think are relevant to today's chapters. 
Bruce R. McConkie, in that speech, said, I wonder how often some of us get our direction from the church and then, Balaam-like, plead for some worldly rewards and finally receive an answer which says, in effect, if you are determined to be a millionaire or to gain this or that worldly honor, go ahead with the understanding that you will continue to serve the Lord. And then we wonder why things don't work out for us as well as they would have done if we had just put first in our lives the things of God's kingdom. So in other words, you know, trying to straddle this fence of like, well, I still want these rewards and the Lord hasn't really said that that's the path to go, but I want to go there anyway, but I'm still going to try to serve the Lord and not upset him. But you know, we want our cake and eat it too. It doesn't work out as well, McConkie says, as it would have done if we had just put first in our lives the things of God's kingdom. So many examples of this big and small. One just, one very simple one, not not one of the giant sins perhaps, but but I do want to say that one thing I was talking about with my husband and a couple of friends that we were talking with the other day was that the Lord has told us through his prophets for decades to simplify. Do we simplify? Seems like I keep hearing about women's, well, women's conferences that become pretty elaborate events or girls' camp. That's one of the big offenders where some girls' camps become like this pageant in the mountains. And, you know, we take all this stuff up to try to make it magical or a fairyland or something. And it, and it costs a lot of money and a lot of time and whatever. And it wears people out. But we're trying to do this in a way that is not simple. I have a dear friend who was asked to help decorate for a youth activity or youth conference that was going to be in one of the canyons in Utah. And her very wise question was, didn't God already decorate the canyon? (laughs) Isn't it already decorated? Gotta love people like that who really see that, yes, why are we trying to embellish something that is naturally beautiful just because we can, but it's not keeping it simple. It's still doing it our way instead of the Lord's way. And then we wonder why we don't get maybe all the blessings that we hope for, or some people kind of burn out from doing it. I mean, I've heard women say that it takes them six months to prepare for girls' camp and six months to recover after it's done. And all that time that they really can't devote to their families, to their marriages, to their children, to their callings, to their own personal growth and development, it concerns me. Certainly, you know, youth conferences can be that way as well, or the treks. The treks can be really ornate or costly in preparation and so on, and and not kept as simple as possible. I'm not against having activities, but the Lord's prophets have told us again and again to simplify. Now, that is not the worst of the ways that we can follow the doctrine of Balaam. Please remember that, you know, what we're talking about here is gross sin and gross disrespect and blasphemy and sacrilege before the Lord. But I guess I'm saying in even small ways, sometimes we just don't listen. We want our cake and eat it too. I want to be an obedient child of God, but even though the prophets have said to simplify, I don't really want to do that. You know, we've always done it this way, which is one of those big traps to say it's, you know, it's our tradition. We've always done it this way when the Lord is saying, no, there's another way that we should have a style of our own, which is simple, not costly, but simple. And then I remember, of course, and I quote this often, so I may have quoted it recently, Doctrine and Covenants section 58. And it's after that part that says that we should be anxiously engaged in good cause. So that's a pretty familiar verse that many of us know of, but then we don't necessarily read the next page or let's think about it very well. Trying to turn to that. Here it is. 
Who am I, saith the Lord? This is verse 31 of section 58 in the Doctrine and Covenants. Who am I, saith the Lord, that have promised and have not fulfilled? I command and men obey not. I revoke and they receive not the blessing. Now, why does he revoke? Because the Lord is not Satan. Satan compels, Satan demands, Satan gets in your face. He brings in the brass band to try to get people to leave their covenants or betray the Lord and betray themselves. And the Lord won't do that. The Lord is in the still small voice, not in the whirlwind, not in the earthquake. The Lord invites, and that's what he's saying. You know, I command and men obey not. And if they obey not, I'm going to revoke. So you don't have prophets in every conference now telling us to simplify. Why do you think that is? Did the Lord ever say, forget that, let's go back to making things fancy and expensive? No, he never said that. He just stopped telling us something that we had heard many times and not listened to as a people. That should be chilling. I revoke and they receive not the blessing. And then it goes on with even more sobering words. And then they say in their hearts, this is not the work of the Lord, for his promises are not fulfilled. In other words, people say like, well, why aren't we getting all the blessings that we want? But did they go back and say like, what have we ignored that the Lord has told us? You know, what have we just, you know, walked right over and passed up and not really internalized or applied in our lives? So then they say in their hearts, repeating this, this is not the work of the Lord, for his promises are not fulfilled, but woe unto such, for their reward lurketh beneath and not from above. Now, let me mention, I've spoken to people who've been involved in sometimes these more elaborate things, and, you know, it wasn't my stewardship, so I wasn't trying to tell them what to do, but sometimes if it came up that these things were demanding a lot of kind of over-the-top preparation and such and and a lot of expense to people or time expended, you know, I might have mentioned that, like, do you think maybe we could simplify these? You know, the prophets have made a big deal in the past about simplifying. And I get this answer of, like, well, but we've done it this way before, and it's been so wonderful because here's this young person who wasn't, you know, active, and now they're active, or this person wasn't going to go on a mission, and now they're going to go on a mission. So see? And they act like it is because they were disobedient that they're getting that blessing. But it's not because they were disobedient. It's in spite of the fact that they didn't follow the counsel of the Lord. And why? Because the Lord is so kind that anyone who is open to the Spirit can receive it. Anybody who is open to feeling that inspiration or testimony can feel it. But as I would tell my children whenever these stories happened or whatever, and I would recount them at home, I would say, just think. God is so kind, he will even bless those who are receptive in spite of the disobedience of their leaders. Just think what an outpouring of love, an outpouring of the Spirit, an outpouring of blessings would have come had they been obedient. So instead of acting like it's the traditions that go against the admonitions of the Lord and his prophets that are creating the blessing, let's not get confused. Let's realize that if we are obedient, the Lord can pour out blessings upon us. The heavens can truly open. Well, brothers and sisters, a couple of other thoughts here. Gosh, going longer than I thought. Just talking about murmuring, because I think that murmuring is such a big deal of what's happening with these children of Israel, we should talk about it for a moment. There's actually a speech in October of 2001 by Elder Ross Workman called Beware of Murmuring. Today, I hope to persuade you to follow the living prophets and warn of the deception the adversary has devised to prevent you from following them. The scriptures refer to that deception as murmuring. 
And then he mentions this parable in Doctrine and Covenants, section 101, where a nobleman sends out servants to plant 12 olive trees and to build a watchtower to guard against the enemy. And he points out the kind of the sequence of murmuring. First, the servants question the order. What need hath my Lord of this tower, seeing this is a time of peace? So they're saying this amongst themselves, like, gee, why does he really need this? Is this important? And he says, that's one of the first steps of murmuring. Second, they begin to rationalize and excuse themselves by asking, like, might not this money be given to the exchangers? In other words, can we not invest it and get some interest? For there is no need of these things. So they find an excuse to disobey. They rationalize it. Third, and justify they're their not doing what the Lord has commanded. And then third, that there's a measure of slothfulness in following the commandments. So it tells in this parable that they became very slothful and they hearkened not unto the commandments of their Lord. And as Elder Workman says, thus the stage was set for disaster. And sure enough, the enemy comes and spoils the whole olive grove because they did not obey. They first questioned and then they rationalized their disobedience and then they were slothful and didn't ever fulfill the commandment and disaster ensued. Elder Workman says a couple of other things that I like. He says, the adversary whispers the deceptive invitation to murmur to thus destroy the power that comes from obedience. That's worth repeating. The adversary whispers the deceptive invitation to murmur to thus destroy the power that comes from obedience. There is a power that comes from obedience. When we obey, we've talked about this a long time ago in the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood and other podcasts that we get power commensurate with our willingness to obey the commandments because the Lord won't give us power if we can't be trusted to be obedient under every circumstance. But he that doeth not anything until he is commanded and receiveth the commandment with doubtful heart and keepeth it with slothfulness, the same is damned. DNC 58. We were just quoting that. 29. Presiding, uh, oh, there's a story about a presiding, and he shares this actually in his speech, Elder Workman, that a presiding authority in one meeting asked the members of the congregation to move forward, but very few moved. He doesn't go into any more detail than that, but I think I remember this story. So forgive me if I'm not correct about this. And if anybody knows the details, let me know. But I'm pretty sure it was Boyd K. Packer. It may have even been in the Marriott Center, and it was some sort of priesthood leadership meeting or something, and people were kind of sprinkled all over that huge part of the arena or whatever, and he said to come down. He asked them to come down closer so that they could be kind of a joined group for this meeting, and hardly anybody moved. And if I remember correctly, Boyd K. Packer was like, then I'm not going to deliver a message. They won't even change seats when they're asked to. They're not going to be ready for the doctrine that I'm about to preach. I'm pretty sure it was something like that. If some of my details are off, forgive me. And then he gave the example of an assignment that he had in West Africa with his wife as a priesthood servant of the Lord. And he said that in one meeting there, a priesthood leader invited the brethren to come forward and occupy the first three rows of the chapel. And he said that in that case in West Africa, every man immediately stood and moved his seat according to the instruction. And he said, it's not just about seats that you sit in. It's about your willingness to obey without complaint, without question, without rationalizing your disobedience, without being slothful. And I think that that's a pretty cool example. So his conclusion is, I invite you to focus on the commandment from living prophets that bothers you the most. Is a great challenge. Do you question whether the commandment is applicable to you? 
Do you find ready excuses why you cannot now comply with the commandment? Do you feel frustrated or irritated with those who remind you of the commandment? Are you slothful in keeping it? Beware of the deception of the adversary. Beware of murmuring. Finally, a few words from a speech by Neil Maxwell given in October of 1989 called Murmur Not. Murmuring seems to come so naturally to the natural man. A basic cause of murmuring is that too many of us seem to expect that life will flow ever smoothly, featuring an unbroken chain of green lights with empty parking places just in front of our destinations. (laughs) That would be nice, wouldn't it? And then he mentions later that murmurers have short memories. That is a great point. Murmurers have short memories. We kind of talked about that in the book of Numbers here. So many examples where they're like, wouldn't you just let me go back and be a slave and die under the harsh tasks of the Egyptians? I mean, what kind of a memory are they really rallying here? Elder Maxwell says, strange, isn't it, brothers and sisters, how those with the shortest memories have the longest lists of demands? However, with no remembrance of past blessings, there is no perspective about what is really going on. Continuing later in the speech, we want full blessings, but without full obedience to the laws upon which those blessings are predicated. For instance, some murmurers seem to hope to reshape the church to their liking by virtue of their murmuring. Have we seen any of that? Hopefully we don't participate in that. Some murmurers, repeating, seem to hope to reshape the church to their liking by virtue of their murmuring. But why would one want to belong to a church that he could remake in his own image when it is the Lord's image that we should come to have in our countenances? That's a pretty excellent point. That here we want to modify the church from how the prophets are leading us in this kingdom. But then why would we want to belong to a church that is just made over in the image of man rather than in the image of the Lord, which is the image we should have in our countenances? And then he mentions Laman and Lamuel, as we did before, and he says that Laman and Lamuel did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. And again, there's all of that that we see through the children of Israel, that they didn't understand God. They didn't trust him. They didn't know who he was, in spite of many, many opportunities they had to come to know the Lord, to see his miracles right in front of them, to see his goodness in front of them. They didn't know him, and they didn't therefore trust him or love him or feel his love for them. Finally, non-murmurers are permitted to see so much more. Let me say it again. Non-murmurers are permitted to see so much more. Ancient Israel was once compassed about with a great host of hostile horses and chariots. This is going to come later in 2 Kings, but Elder Maxwell mentions this wonderful example. Elisha counseled his anxious young servant, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. One of my favorite stories. I have lots of favorite stories. This is one of them. The prophet then prayed that the Lord would open the young man's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And Maxwell concludes, Elisha's counsel can help church members today to silence our murmuring. Regardless of how things seem or come to seem in troubled times, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. My brothers and sisters, if our lips are closed to murmuring, then our eyes can be opened. I 
think that's so beautiful, an apostolic plea on our behalf that we close our lips to murmuring so that our eyes can be opened and we can see the hand of the Lord in our own lives and in the workings of this world, in the workings of His kingdom, and in the coming to pass of all His promises on our behalf in the due time of the Lord. As you, I'm sure, can see, there is no way that we can establish Zion if we murmur. We need to cease the murmuring. We can inquire of the Lord. We can ask for His guidance. We can ask for Him to help us know how to address our problems. There is nothing wrong with that. But murmuring is different. Murmuring is an excuse not to obey. To question the commandments in the first place, as we said, to be doubtful, to complain, to criticize, to have a terribly short memory when it comes to how good the Lord is to His people. Let us build Zion. Let us choose glory. I want to thank again my husband Chris Anderson and Doug Larson of Point Digital for all their help, and I invite you to come and join me on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash choosing glory to subscribe. And those subscriptions help me to continue this podcast and to create some extra content. Thanks so much. Take care.